0: Welcome to the Capital Insight podcast with Jenny Casson and Michelle Timish, two capital raising experts on a mission to demystify and equify the world of investment for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Listen in as they sit down with fundraising veterans and share with you the success stories and cautionary tales of outside the box capital raising. This is Capital Insight.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Capital Insight Podcast. My name is Michelle Timish. I'm here with my colleague, Jenny Casson. We are really excited to have with us today Noni Session and Annie McShiras, both from East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, EBPREC, as we as, as they are affectionately known locally in the Bay Area. Welcome, Noni, Annie Um, Noni is the executive director. Annie is the investment and fundraising director. We are here to talk to them today about all of the exciting things that they've got going. And Noni, I'll start with you. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got started, and what led you to do this crazy thing you're doing in, (laughs) in, in trying to bring equality to real estate?
0: Sure, I can do that. Thanks for having us here today. Um, we are um, really honored to be on your podcast. Given that um, EBPrex parent organization, the Sustainable Economies Law Center, was founded by, your, uh, by, your, uh, uh, by yourself, Jenny. So there's something sort of um, um, a feeling of completion having this conversation with you today. My name is Noni Session, and I am first and foremost a third generation West Oaklander, um, which is a historic uh, Black community in Oakland, California, that has really been the subject of rapid racialized displacement um, in relationship to a very hot real estate market and uh, a finance system that really doesn't favor those who who don't already have generational or network access to capital. So um, that's the first part of my identity and my formative experiences that really drives the mission of my work. But also I have a background that um, surprisingly um, has really informed um, the vision that EBPREC has been able to really bring into reality and spread across the sectors, across um, affordable housing. Although we are not an affordable housing developer, we do develop projects that are permanent and affordable across um, impact investment across the real estate field and across community development impact. So my my primary school education was in uh, black independent schools and um, Oakland public schools. And then I went on to San Francisco State University to major in cultural anthropology and black studies. Uh, and after teaching for a year in a Title I day school, I went on to do my doctoral work at Cornell University in cultural anthropology. And so you would think that there was not a natural fit between cultural anthropology and real estate investment and real estate development. <laughs> but in fact, my work was in, took place in Nairobi, Kenya, um, in the United Nations Development Program um, inside of its disaster mitigation agency called Drylands Development Center. And really, what I studied were international um, um, philanthropic professionals, such as folks in the UNDP, the World Bank, the IMF, um, USAID, um, and the ways that their professional, bureaucratic, and productive processes were really a, a cultural framework deeply embedded in their subjectivities. So instead of really working with what we tend to think of as objective tools and mechanisms for doing good in the world, um, there were really sort of unseen and, and but very deeply felt um, cultural and ideological investments that constrained the outcomes for these international communities who all of us, yourself and myself alike, are supposed to be here to serve. Um, it involved looking at the way that capital flows and power flows and meanings, and world systems theory. And when I returned home from doing my doctoral work in 2011, I saw that my community had been completely decimated by these same dynamics of international absentee capital, of a really rapidly moving real estate market and really no strong advocacy for legacy communities and people of color. Um, and I really didn't think there was much impact for a cultural anthropologists to make on this field. but I did start volunteering and getting a sense of what was going on in the city. And all of that work culminated in a city council campaign where we came within about 1500 votes of unseating um, a, a, an entrenched incumbent who was throwing the doors wide open to uncheck speculative capital. And I really saw where the missing pieces were for how to um, sort of grab these, these seemingly out of control processes by the reins and bring them back into control of folks who are most affected by these transformations. And lucky enough, that was based in um, building cooperative enterprises for folks um, and building networks for folks and bringing in transformative capital for folks and supporting them with technical assistance to um, um, realize their vision. Because that's really what's missing in our cities nationwide. It's There's no lack of vision in brown communities and white communities and mixed communities. What there is is a lack of control over regional capital movements, a lack of control over major decisions about our neighborhoods and our communities. So, um, all of my accidental um, pivots have uh, led me here to be working with amazing people like AIM, Annie McShiris, Ojana Rishahi, Sher Shaham, um, Janelle Orsi, and I just feel really fortunate to um, be doing this work.
1: Welcome, Noni. Annie, why don't you introduce yourself so people know um, your, your role in EBPRAC? Great. Yeah. Thanks, Michelle. And thanks, Jenny, for having us today.
2: Um, my name is Annie McShiris, and I'm EB Prex Investment and Fundraising Director. I've been with The Collective now for about one year, and um, I am a financial activist, first and foremost, and how I, how I define that is um, I work with the, um, with the resources and capital that exists um, out in the world and, and try to use those resources to advance racial and social justice, Um, And I, you know, I've, I've got a background in and mostly fundraising for grassroots organizations, community based organizations, um, the past 12 years or so, and really came to understand um, my role in this movement as as someone who could activate and galvanize resources towards um, towards racial justice in particular, Um, and uh, my move towards working with EBPREC came after um, uh, my experience in the financial industry, um, understanding and seeing the ways that capital flows can really do harm to communities and actively you know, do harm to communities um, by design. And um, my, you know, my passion for uh, creating a, a Bay Area that works for everyone and um, that is inclusive and allows for control over resources, um, you know, brought me to, to EB Prex doorstep when, when they were founded. Actually, I was a big fan and, and became an investor owner um, when I, the, the first second I could in 2018 um, and had just been following their work. And um, and when the opportunity arose to, to join the team um, a year ago and, and help lead their um, direct public offering campaign, which we'll talk more about later in this segment, um, I just jumped at the chance to, to join such a a visionary and, um, and and practical, radical team that, you know, is really walking the walk in terms of addressing the Bay Area's housing crisis and racialized displacement that has been going on for decades, and that just continues to get worse. Um, and I think um, we have a tremendous opportunity to activate um, resources and capital that is, you know, latent in pockets uh, spread across the Bay Area and the country, um, to to move those capital, that capital and resources into the hands of um, our 300 um, member owners of our cooperative, and um, to use it to to be able to um, allow for um, the grounding and permanence of communities of color to stay in their home in the Bay Area, and I myself am. Um, I was born in San Jose and have just seen how um, how rapid this displacement, this racialized displacement, has happened, and um, really, really feel called to utilize my skills to to try to reverse what's happening um, and and keep people rooted in place.
3: That's so amazing. We just are so impressed with. I mean, you really are innovators in kind of two different ways. One what you're doing with real estate, and two, how you're raising money. (laughs) And we want to hear about both, but you know, this podcast is very focused on super innovative ways to raise money in a way that's just and sustainable and allows more people to invest and become wealth holders. So if, you know, I'm not sure who wants to share more about your model of how you have been raising money from investors and Maybe tell us the, your story, your journey of raising money and where you're going from here.
0: Well, it's been quite a journey, I would say. Um, we started out sort of with a, with a, with a what, what do they call it? With a dollar and a dream. <laughs> Uh, we initially the founding body of EB Prec, uh, we were all volunteers. All of us came with um, professional experience um, but a vision for something that we had never seen before and After about um, six or ten months of working together um, our 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 I would call her our collaborator, but she she's really she's really like um, one of the closest um, partners and visionaries that we've had throughout this journey. Janelle Orsi felt like there was this was the time to really reach out to our supporters and let them know that we may had have, have had landed on a really um, a really powerful recipe for making um, um, more capital and more land available to underserved communities in Oakland. So we did a soft fundraising campaign. Janelle and I literally called folks who had been rooting for this vision and asked them for $1,000, $5,000, $700, $6,000. And we launched our first staff collective with a $36,000 budget. With such a small a small pot that we were working with, I think many um, large scale capital holders such as um, mission to line banks, CDFIs, um, really thought we were um, advancing a pipe dream around being able to move um, multiple pieces of land and housing in a market like Oakland, where um, average purchase price just for a single family home is, is hitting, hitting 1.2 million, excuse me, median purchase price is hitting 1.2 million. Uh, but we, we decided to move our capital raising um, goals forward through our mission. So instead of seeking capital first, once we had our small pot of funding just to support um, the kind of labor um, that we knew was gonna be necessary to get to our first purchase, uh, we decided to, to go out into the field and across the sectors and really discuss and share and elaborate on what needed to happen to transform Um, the outcomes happening in Oakland. Um, We spoke to land trusts, we spoke to banks, we spoke to CDFIs, we spoke to our frontline community members, we spoke to high net worth capital holders and really started to um, advance um, a political philosophy that contextualized the way that we were using capital um, and really started to um, position uh, a sh- position ourselves and others who had a hope for a dress, just transition, position us toward a, a, a shifted mindset around what a return on capital really looks like, what a return on it really entails, and, and the ways that we needed to set up our communities and our vision for our future um, um, to receive these high hopes we have. Right, And so our really our first um, win in the field was through building a relationship with um, Northern California Land Trust, who um, through this political education went out on a limb for us and supported us in, in financing our first project which is uh, co-op 789 a multi-unit apartment building and because we were building a critical mass of individuals in the community who believed in and supported um, the edprec vision with their individual investments of one thousand dollars each these are these are grandmas and cousins and youth um, who were taking a thousand dollars out of their personal bank accounts and transferring it to EBPREC in a spirit of trust. And we were able to use those first 250 people who invested in the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative and the Co-op 789 project to to take that as almost um, credit in the bank to um, larger institutions like the um, Heritage Bank who loaned us the difference in the project through Northern California Land Trust, like City of Oakland, who supported that project with Measure KK dollars, which was one of the first times Measure KK dollars had been used for a collectively owned project. Uh, We were even able to change, um, shift some of the language and the practice in the city of Oakland in relationship to prioritizing collectively owned um, acquisition projects. We were able to take it to the doors of CDFIs and foundations and, and really high net worth folks who had been looking for a way to divest their capital into something that returned um, their investment in some of the right now less tangible ways, but in terms of the future that we're building for a community to save culture, to save histories, to save sovereignties in a way that would pay off more than we'd seen in a generation. Um, So, uh, I'll probably wrap that up there and we can come back to it. But really, the, the foundation of our work was really to demonstrate a critical mass of community vision of, of all um, economic Conditions and walks of life that then we take to larger institutions and organizations to demonstrate. There's an, an, a there's another way to 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 demonstrate the verity and the ability to return investment other than the conventional, um, if you will, actuarial numbers that determine risk because we know risk automatically disadvantages communities of color, um, um, communities with um, socioeconomic disadvantage, just because of the way that risk is defined. So we first work to redefine risk um, in order to um, really create the results that we've created thus far.
1: That's great. Noni, I love how your approach to this has been, you're in it for the long game and your patience with where we are, in spite of the fact that it can be so demoralizing is one of the things that really inspires me every time I hear you speak. So I want to thank you for that. Annie, why don't you bring us up to speed on the offering as it exists today and how things are going? Tell us a little bit about that journey, how that's been for you.
2: Certainly, yes. Um, yeah, I think Noni, you Noni laid out the history of our capital raising strategy and campaign, and, and the way that we were re-envisioning and reimagining our relationship to capital and um, and relationship to people that could resource um, East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative in those early days, um, grandmas and cousins and. Um, Just everyday people who were able to to put $1,000 into our collective um, and and move that into property acquisitions. So fast forward to 2020, um, we actually wrote um, our own SEC paperwork to qualify for a direct public offering, um, which is a national designation for uh, being able to, to resource from Um, everyday people across the country, not just in California, um, to realize our vision. So um, in October of 2020, we successfully qualified um, to be able to offer uh, $1,000 and up shares into East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, um, which we are continuing to raise um, and um, have been quite successful thus far. Um, I think we've we've now raised nearly $800,000 through our direct public offering and are continuing to see upward momentum, um, from people across the country who are excited about our model and, and want to see this vision happen in the East Bay and, you know, maybe other, in other places too, um, wanting to see that there's, you know, a way that, uh, communities can control land and housing across the country. Um, and so, yeah, we, um, we are now qualified to sell securities in 13 states and the District of Columbia. Um, and um, if anyone is interested in learning more about where and how to invest in EBPREC, um, you can check out our website, ebprec.org offering to see our full offering circular. And then um, ebprec.org slash investor um, to become an investor owner at $1,000. Um, But really it's, it's, it's a crowdfunding model that um, democratizes the, the way that we're able to raise dollars and, um, and allows folks to participate on their own terms in our model um, by, by making it easy for unaccredited and accredited investors to, um, to invest in our collective. Yeah, that is so amazing. And just for those who are wondering, I'm
3: going to Uh, say something about the legal piece of that. So uh, what the way you all raised, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but what's really cool is that when you were first raising money, you were using a California exemption that a bunch of co-ops had gotten in place um, that allows you to raise money as for as a co-op from investors as long as no one puts in more than a thousand dollars. And what's so nice about that exemption is that you didn't have to do a lot of complicated legal filings. And then you switch to a Regulation A, maybe A plus, <laughs> so
1: yes. that you
3: could yes. Um, yes. So, so that you could do national. You could um, you know people could invest more than a thousand. And you you can also, there's, you can raise quite a bit under regulation A plus, which is also really nice. So yeah, I'd love to hear, I mean, we don't have to get into the nitty gritty of the legal piece, but I just love that um, you took advantage of something that was available, um, you know, to co-ops in California. There's other states that have similar laws. Co-ops do often have friendlier laws uh, for raising money from investors, which is awesome. And then you took it to the next level. So, and by the way, we will share all of the links that you're mentioning to, to, uh, in the show notes to make sure that people can get the right link to, to to be able to learn more about what you did. The cool thing about Regulation A is it everything is totally available to the public. So you can really see, you know, what they had to prepare to be able to do this. And it's not the easiest thing in the world, but from what I understand, talking to Janelle Orsi, mm-hmm you, you know, the SEC was actually pretty friendly and supportive. Is that, how was your experience dealing with the Securities and Exchange Commission?
0: (laughs) Yes. Uh, Well, I'll start with the the exemption that you mentioned, AB 816, which Sustainable Economies Law Center was involved in writing and helping to be passed. Yay for Sustainable Economies Law Center. Um, And it, it, It's an interesting um, exemption that we were able to leverage. Uh, Before AB 816, you could only invest in a cooperative enterprise um, up to the amount of $350 if you were a non-accredited investor, that is a person with a net worth of a million dollars or less. Um, It raised the cap to $1,000 which means that, which meant for us that you could aggregate capital much more quickly. 500 individual people who are invested in their future, who are invested in their community, can still until today come together and and create the seed for purchasing a piece of land or housing together that makes a huge difference in the future of their neighborhood. Um, The brilliant, and powerful part of that, not only that it lowers the barriers to be able to sell the security for folks who often don't have access to the technical networks, the lawyers, the financiers, which is critical. It also moves toward this larger overarching mission that we have around accessibility, right? Around Demonstrating that we can in fact take our future into our own hands instead of waiting for profiteers who often don't live, work, or have a history or a story um, based in these places that need capital most, we don't we no longer have to wait for folks to direct us to our own future. Um, this, this this category, this identity category of, uh, of an investor, of having a net worth of a million dollars or less, that the, the SEC regulations are there to quote unquote, protect this investor from predatory investment. And that's incredibly important. But there's also this sort of element of sovereignty that is built by a cousin or an uncle or a grandma, or even a small business who says, I can invest in the future of my community, despite the fact that I am not among the 1% or the 9%. So it's pretty powerful. And in, in all of our techniques that we're building out, all of our tools we're building out inside of EBPREC, our mission, our radical approach is an eye toward making this accessible to the everyday person who has a vision for their future. So the same thing goes for when we wrote our SEC paperwork. Um, we could have paid a consultant $30,000 to do that for us. Uh, but instead, we spent a year, two to three times a week, circling up with our lawyers, our finance director, Ojan Mobut Shahi, our new investment director, Annie, myself, really populating all of the required fields of the SEC paperwork both with um, the technical requirements, but also really pushing at the edges of some of the questions. So for example, one of the core um, concerns that the SEC wants to know is how, how, how strongly can you assure your investors that they will not lose their money, knowing that there's never any guarantee that an investment won't result in a loss. So we really leveraged this idea of community-based support, um, this idea of, for example, my identity as a a third-generation West Oaklander uh, being heavily invested in the future of this project. Uh, We really um, laid bare our detailed process for how we build out projects, how we build out relationships that serve as a check and balance on one another. So it was very gritty. It was as gritty as the two years we spent writing the bylaws, meeting two or three times a week, just to go line by line by line, creating a document that's accessible to people after the moment we submitted to um, governmental organizations, right? Because the key to this work is that it is replicable, that EBPREC is not a, 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 a bottleneck, but rather a conduit to more people having more access and being able to see in a transparent manner how to get from a $36,000 budget to moving over, uh, at this point, more than $8 million in assets in about five years. So it was actually pretty empowering and powerful and arduous and arduous. And then what we did do is when it was time to edit and format, we did pay a consultant about three or $4,000 because formatting is a very tricky thing. Um, And um, the SEC was available by phone. Once we submitted our documents to them, they issued us back corrections that then we uh, very swiftly went through and corrected, but they were very minor corrections that were just about more clarity for the investor. And once we were approved, we have an annual report to submit to them to to demonstrate our progress. And we have to be very careful about making sure that our investment links are present in each time we mention the investment. Um, so we did have to learn a lot of rules. but They were very transparent rules. And um, it's, it's something that I that we know is going to be very accessible to more communities in the future. Um, yeah, it's it's wonderful
1: to see you using the tools that we really do have to promote economic development. And your use of 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 Reg A is an example of one of those those tools. Certainly, my question for you is that activation piece that you referred to when you first started speaking, and I'm wondering how you're handling that because, as you know, the people that need the tool the most, oftentimes. Don't know anything about it. If you think about it, the people that we would love to see invest in a project like this, and alongside of the wealthy, are those people who are the most impacted by it. And you're giving that opportunity to the community to invest in itself. But what do you do about the very real problem that we have in activating and educating people who have been boxed out of the system for? almost a hundred years, how are they supposed to even know or understand about opportunities like this?
0: I will say that the organizing part of our work um, has been uh, definitely a learning arc and a roller coaster and a hit and miss. I think what we've really landed on thus far is that we share, for communities that have been underserved, There's been uh, repeated cycles of of what um, you might call in the the field do-gooder organizations who pass through community meetings and community circles, making lots of promises about what they're going to do. And often there's very little tangible outcome left when these folks um, parachute out. And so what I've seen um, personally, and I think um, EB-PREC might agree with some of these conclusions, is that it's really been important to demonstrate the opportunity through the trope of a tangible project that is happening now with real people experiencing real challenges that, that is grounded in a real place where people pass the physical building on a daily basis. So each time we launch a new capital campaign, we don't launch on the basis of how much capital we need to raise. We launch on the basis of the people that we're serving, the impact that those folks hope to make in their community, and the surrounding neighborhood and community networks who are interested in supporting and being a part of that impact. And what that does is it provides a platform for visibility and and technical and political education around how we are building the arc to the acquisition. And so it creates a real um, material consequence, a real emotional um, impact and an and, and outcome that can be trusted and depended on because you can see it right in front of your eyes. Um, so that's often um, been um, our findings that we are able to activate our our the our underserved counterparts through demonstrating the proof and the possibility of something that seems so unlikely at each stage. so for example, our current project which Um, It's called the Esther's Orbit Room Cultural Revival Project. We are undertaking to purchase a historic but um, deserted uh, Black cultural asset along the West Oakland 7th Street corridor um, and using that as a platform to bring more capital and revitalize an area that's really been under 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 supported by our municipality, and definitely exploited by um, profit-seeking developers for at least three generations. Um, And folks who have um, a history in West Oakland, uh, Esther's Orbit Room is a critical part of the geographical landscape. There is no person who has any knowledge of Esther's Orbit Room that doesn't immediately light up when we discuss the ways that we're planning to position this acquisition, to give back to the Black arts community, to revitalize their story and their revenue base in the way that you found it um, in the 1950s and the 1960s, even as late as the 1970s. And that becomes a tangible reason to, to, to muster up a new set of faith in another organization, Um, And invest time and money and your own network relationships into this transformation um, that we're sharing with our community.
3: Yes, I was so excited when I saw that you were working on that project. That is an area that was really decimated by redevelopment and by BART coming through and the freeway. So it's just so awesome. So I just want to ask, you know, given that you have been raising money now for a while from- all kinds of investors. One of the purposes of this podcast is to challenge stereotypes of who investors are. So, what have you learned about investors? You know, what would you say? Who are your investors? You've mentioned a little bit about grandmas and uncles, but like tell us more about who people are. How, you know, what is the diversity of the kinds of people that are coming in to invest and what are they looking for? Why are they choosing to invest in what you're doing?
0: Um, I think Annie might want to stack on top of this, so feel free to jump in, Annie. Um, It's been interesting, the sort of um, evolving arc of our investors. I think that the the three projects we hold right now, um, sort of as, as an agglomerate, demonstrate the diversity of our investors. And as we move forward to other projects, I believe that we will be circling back around to um, the different um, um, sort of, uh, what do you want to call it, uh, changing character of the investor. Uh, So our first project um, was almost completely constituted by individual um, small um, wealth, Holders, and when I say small wealth holders, I'm talking about people with retail bank accounts, right? Um, so maybe you wouldn't even call them wealth holders, but um, we're all valuable in this society. Um, and it was it it and it was important that that project was relatively small, that the the pot we were trying to raise was around two hundred and eighty five thousand um, dollars, so as to feel feasible and accessible to. Um, our community members. Our second project, which is a single-family home in Berkeley with a detached dance studio, our major investor was our donor, who really believed in the just transition and knew that we had to um, um, really demonstrate a model where high net worth wealth holders and asset holders um, rejected the proposition of the speculative market that after a lifetime of work and labor and value accumulation, that it would then be resold as a generic commodity object to other folks. I'm receiving that donation of that house with a detached dance studio, which, by the way, houses um, two Black women working artists, um, one with a daughter, really inspired um, other members of the community to offer us donations of land and wealth, which is another critical investment to offer us access to their high network networks. Um, And it opened the door to um, several um, ultra wealthy folks um, inserting us into this conversation where folks were really looking to divest this this thing we call properly wealth um, into impact um, fields. And entering us into that relationship has um, um, then opened us into um, being invested in by foundations, um, donor advised funds, uh, family funds, and family foundations while our small, Um, wealth holders continue to invest. So today we have over 400 individual um, investors um, still pulling $1,000 out of their bank account, uh, $5,000 out of their IRAs, um, and putting it with EBPREC. Um, because they believe in the vision, because they trust us. And as our critical mass of individuals who are invested in the future of our community continues to develop, foundations, um, as I mentioned, um, continue to support this critical mass of people um, who see a future in this version of transformative investment. Um, I want to hand it over to Annie to give a little bit more detail on how that's really worked. But the last thing I want to say is Um, Our fourth project we're looking at will be a multi-unit apartment building. And by the way, we've just trained our first community organization in building out their own pro forma and vetting the financial feasibility of their own project. This is the accessibility that we're talking about. And those folks have accumulated um, $300,000 in community capital that, that will be invested into a project Um, if we find an apartment building that is appropriate for them to live in. So you see this full circle where we've had to do a few different kinds of projects that that attract different magnitudes of investment. And as the diversity of our projects circle back around, you'll see that it will continue to pull in this same wide variety of people who have a vision for our future together.
2: Yeah, this is Annie, and thanks so much, Noni. I think you gave a great summary of the types of the diversity of investors that we're seeing join our um, join our network of investor owners, and and you know really want to participate in supporting the work of BBPrac um, through through moving some of their dollars. Um, and yeah, I think. Through the direct public offering campaign and the communications and visibility we've created around our campaign and in particular, um, you know, galvanizing support for Esther's Orbit Room Revitalization and the 7th 7th Street Corridor in West Oakland. Um, We've seen people join us um, from around the country and it's been really encouraging. Um, A lot of the investors that we were able to Um, to galvanize are are based on the relationships that we've developed over the years um, with both retail investors and with the institutional investors Noni mentioned, like foundations, um, uh, larger mission aligned organizations, donor advised funds, and financial advisors. Um, But we also have seen you know folks coming in who have heard us on a podcast <laughs> or who have you know read about us in Oakland side and get really excited about the fact that they can they can too invest. Um, and so I think the power of our crowdfunding model has reverberating impacts in the sense that you know we see people that we've never even talked to before, who learned about us through one of these, you know one of these outreach efforts or publications and and decided to, to take a chance and invest with us and and see that they can benefit the community of West Oakland and um, and the East Bay at large uh, over Wall Street, right? They can divest from Wall Street and and reinvest into Seventh Street. And um, I think a lot of people are really excited about that idea um, and and actually want to to put their money where their mouth is and put their money where their values are and um, have a, have a, a tighter, a closer relationship. To the ways in which their capital can support, can support communities that they care about, as opposed to harming communities um, that we've seen through so many of the extractive financial practices that are prevalent, um, you know, in our financial system. Um, so yeah, I think and I'm just looking at all four for a list of our 400 donors, and you know, it's it's really incredible um, the diversity of. Donors and investors that are are coming into um, are coming into our organization. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's really the power of our crowdfunding model and and uh, an approach to to democratizing um, the the ways in which people can invest and and support community
1: development on their own terms. Thank you so much, both of you, for sharing the possibilities, how um, this is a model for what what really can be achieved in communities. And if needed, of course, across the country, you are are leading this charge and we are incredibly proud to know you and thank you for your work. Anything else that you um, wanted to add before we have to sign off? Um, Tips for getting involved in terms of direct investing? or even on the, on the fundraising side for entrepreneurs. Any final thoughts for either of those people?
0: My final thought is always to invest in communities, not commodities. And I'm sure Annie has more to add.
2: Invest in communities, not commodities. Yes. <laughs> um, something else I wanted to add is just the incredible, both the incredible amount of support we've seen in terms of people getting excited about our model and wanting to invest with us. And also maybe trying to replicate um, uh, their create their own permanent real estate cooperative in their own community. Um, and the other piece that I didn't mention, I wanted to make sure to, to note is that nearly 50% of our investor owners have opted not to receive dividends on their investment. Um, and so what that means is that they're making they're making a 0% equity investment into our organization and are you know waving that modest 1.5% targeted dividend that we offer, um, and to me that just speaks volumes to to just how how powerful it is to to really invest in line with your values and and how powerful our message has come across to um, folks across the country who who really want to see the model work and who really want to see um, Community control of real estate and land and housing, um, because the reason we set up our model in this way is to to both involve uh, a large network of you know participatory crowdfunding support, and also to lower the um, the rent burden that our resident owners are you know used to used to having to bear the brunt of. Um, And so the way that our business model actually works is um, because we're able to bring in low cost capital through our network of investor owners, um, returning a targeted dividend of 1.5%, like I mentioned, our business model, that that low cost of capital allows us to um, lower the, um, the, the rents charged to our resident owners. Um really, it's actually their contribution or their purchase price to to becoming a resident owner in EBPRAC, and we, we're able to make housing more affordable as a result of lowering our cost cost of capital in some and so our investors understand that and are choosing to waive their dividends so that they can allow us to um, increase that affordability even more so. Um, so our business model really relies on this low cost of capital and we've seen a real response from our investors who are who, who are who are wanting to to help us meet that vision even more squarely by um, accepting a zero percent return on their investment.
3: Wow, I'm so glad you shared that because that just brings up a few takeaways that I think people need to really pay attention to. One is that there are investors out there who feel so strongly about the mission that they're contributing to that they're willing to take a zero percent return. More than 50%. That's incredible. And, you know, there's something called Kiva where everyone who invests on Kiva gets a 0% return. So that's really evidence that people need to be aware of that not all investors are solely focused on maximizing their financial return. Many, many investors are interested in doing more with their money than just making more money. And then the other thing, I is, it's such a good point. Sometimes when people invest and they make a return on their investment, they don't think about like, where is that money coming from and who is not getting benefits because of my financial return as an investor. So Annie, you just make such a great point that if I'm willing to take a lower return, that has direct benefits in terms of being able to provide more affordable housing for folks that, you know, are becoming owners of these cooperatives. So um, I'm so glad that you brought that up. And we just want to thank both of you so much. And we really encourage our listeners to check out their offering, their investment offering. Yeah, we will add all the information about that to the show notes. And we really wish you the best of success as you continue to grow what you're doing. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you, Noni and Annie. Thank you so
0: much for having us. And thank you for existing.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for existing. (laughs) All right.
0: Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Do you have any questions for our securities lawyers and capital raising experts? Call the podcast hotline and leave us a message at 866-552-7726, extension 5. You can also send other inquiries to podcast at JennyCasson.com. We'd love to hear from you. Music for the Capital Insight podcast is Still Searching by Damon Criswell via Audio Hero. Thank you for listening to Capital Insight with Jenny Casson and Michelle Timish. Until next time.